just can't get these numbers to add up. It's like we're never gonna get out of this hole. Credit card debt, does it ever end? <laughs> Maybe I can help. We sure could use it. We've tried debt consolidation companies. We've even taken out loans to help make payments. Well, you're not the only ones. Did you know millions of Americans live with debt they cannot control? That's why I developed this unique new program for managing your debt. It's called Don't Buy Stuff You Cannot Afford. Oh, let me see that. If you don't have any money, you should not buy anything. Hmm, sounds interesting. Sounds confusing. I don't know, honey. This makes a lot of sense. There's a whole section here on how to buy expensive things using money you save. Give me that. And where would you get this saved money? I tell you where and how in chapter three. Okay, but what if I want something but I don't have any money? You don't buy it. Well, let's say I don't have enough money to buy something. Should I buy it anyway? No. <laughs> now I'm really confused. It's a little confusing at first. Well, what if you have the money? Can you buy something? Yes. Now take the money away. Same story? Nope. You shouldn't buy stuff when you don't have the money. I think I got it. I buy something I want and then hope that I can pay for it, right? <laughs> no. You make sure you have money, then you buy it. Oh, then you buy it. But shouldn't you buy it before you have the money? No. Why not? It's in the book. It's only one page long. <laughs> the advice is priceless and the book is free. Wow, I like the sound of that. Yeah, we can put it on our credit card. <laughs> so get out of debt now. Write for your free copy of Don't Buy Stuff You Cannot Afford. And if you order now, you'll also receive Seriously. If you don't have the money, don't buy it. Along with a 12-month subscription to Stop Buying Stuff magazine. So order today. Yeah, that script, I think, could be taken right out of the book of Proverbs, right? Just, it's common sense, but it's not common. If, if you don't have the money, don't buy it. We're uh, going through the book of Proverbs uh, as a church, and there are different types of wise men and different types of fools. And today, we're going to look at what this book of wisdom has to say about asset management, our wealth. And we'll start with this poor fool over here in the section that's different types of fools or this part of the stage, and we express our foolishness in different avenues of our life. This one is a poor fool. And the reason why he's a fool first in the Bible, we find that it's the way he tries to make money. It says in verse 13, 11, it says, Wealth from get-rich-quick schemes quickly disappear. Wealth from hard work, it grows over time. So usually the foolish person, the, the poor fool, is usually trying to chase some gimmick about how to get rich as fast as they can when people that are able to accumulate wealth know that, well, you know, the tortoise usually beats the hare. Hard work there literally is, in the Hebrew, says hand-to-hand regular, you know, working diligently over a long period of time. When I think about, you know, this audience, I don't think a lot of us are chasing those schemes so much anymore. We've learned that hard work does pay off, and those shortcuts aren't ever short. <laughs> that They end up taking you the long way. I think most of us get in trouble in the context of this being this poor fool, and not the way we make money, but the way we, the way we spend money. 
we get rid of it faster than we make it. Look what it says in 2117. Those who love pleasure become uh, poor. Those who love wine and luxury will never be rich. A fool and his money are soon parted. Right, and that's because if you have no discipline in your spending habits, so whatever, you know, feels good or looks pretty or tastes satisfying, you spend your money, and then you have nothing to show for it. The hand sign for this fool is this, this poor fool, because we've seen people do this, right? Isn't there just some guy who used to play football? And he had millions of dollars, and I think he's broke now. And if you look at the caricature there, you know, we've made him into an athlete and a celebrity. I think he's got a Ferrari in the back that he has payments due on. And I don't know about you, but I am always mystified about athletes and celebrities that make hundreds, literally hundreds of millions of dollars, and then to find out later that they were, they're broke, or usually they're not broke. Usually they're in a lot of debt. And I just think, how, how can you overspend $100 million in a couple of years even? Well, let me tell you how that happens. It's this foolish thing, right? They, they just love whatever tastes good and, and looks pretty, and they just keep buying. And so it's not like they had a $100 million and they spent $150 million. No, it started when they made $1,000 and they spent $1,500. Now it goes back to when they made $100 and they spent $150. And that's how you end up doing that. You just, it just, the money just happens and it goes right through your fingers. And what's true for these athletes and these celebrities that get into so much debt with untold millions, it's the same for us. We spend more than we make. Most Americans don't have anything in savings. The average American is $20,000 in the credit card debt. And why is that? Because they spend foolishly. They're a poor fool. You want to trade up? I mean, if this is the American dream, you want to live the wise way to live? You want to live in the parameters of what's the wisdom that can be found in the book of Proverbs? You want to trade up from all the fatigue and the stress and the fear and the arguing, number one cause of marital strife is financial problems. And it's because generally we spend more than we can make. You wanna trade up? There's a way of trading up. Look at what it says in 2120. The wise have wealth and luxury, but the fool spends whatever they get. It just goes right through their fingers. The wise have wealth because they save. They're disciplined. They can say no. They make a budget. So if you want to trade up, we have made this available. It's right there in your bulletin. It's called Faithful Finances. And if this is a problem for you or you haven't even made a budget yet, it's a great idea to take a calculator and a pencil to your income and expenses. And this is a class that's for the next four weeks, meets the second hour. And we have some great men and women that are astute in this subject. And they'll sit down with you and say, okay, let's make this work. It's usually a class that we don't offer in the summertime, but because of the series that we're going through, we're going to make it available. Would you please consider going to that? Would you consider trading up? That would be a great way to start. And getting out of, right, you know, the poor foolish habits that you might have and trade up to wisdom. The Bible talks a lot about money. As a matter of fact, if you just put a calculator to it, the number of times the Bible talks about prayer is around 270 references to that. 
about 380 times, there's some kind of allusion to how to love your neighbor, how to care for you know, your fellow man. But when it talks about finances or resources or assets or what's called stewardship, over 2,000 times it comes up. And here's why. Because when the Bible talks about money, it's not talking about money. It's, it's not about money. It's about your heart. And what the Bible says is nothing shows the truth of the values in your soul better than a bank book. I mean, you can say all kinds of things about your relationship with God or your love for God or your concern for your fellow man and your desire to help the poor, but the bank account, it speaks truth because whatever that says is what you truly value. And that's why Jesus talks more about finances than he does heaven or hell. And when he talks about finances, he's not really talking about finances. It's a way of monitoring your health, the health of your soul. It's, it's nothing more than uh, taking your blood pressure. I, I don't know what the simplicity of taking your blood pressure and what it tells you, because I'm not a cardiologist, but I, I know this, that every time you go into a grocery store or a pharmacy, there's a, there's a thing. And take, you just sit in that chair, put your arm in the sleeve, and 60 seconds later, they're going to tell you, you know what, you need to see a professional about this because your heart is not well. Your bank account does that same thing for your spiritual heart. It only takes a, lot, a short amount of time to look at the way you save and spend and give. It says a lot about who you are and what you're like. And here's why. I mean, we, we, are, in, we are takers, and we're supposed to be givers. Okay? We're supposed to turn our souls outwards towards God and other people, be focusing outside of ourselves. And we, a sick soul turns itself inward. A foolish soul turns itself in, and it's all about themselves. Uh, we're supposed to be givers, and we tend to be very stingy. Listen to these next words. They're important. We're, we're not supposed to covet. We're supposed to be content. We're supposed to be generous, not envy. And this, this thing, this envy and coveting, it's a serious matter in the Bible. Just in the New Testament alone, 35 times, it says, danger, thy shall not covet. And listen, it's in the Ten Commandments, right? Depending upon which list you look at, the Protestant list, it's one of the ten. The Catholic list, it's two of the ten. It's 20% because coveting is so dangerous to the soul. And let me give you just three reasons why it's so dangerous and powerful, I think. Because envy and coveting is intuitive to us. It just, it, it is, it's the way we're bent. And I'll show you how bad the bent is. Before we were bent... The original story, you go back in time, you the original story, the first family have who knows how many square miles of paradise to live in. Can I ask you just a simple question? If you had a thousand square miles of paradise, how would Mr. and Mrs. end up in front of the only thing they can't have? I mean, do you see just kind of the, the strangeness of that? All this is yours. Have fun and freedom. And the two of them are staring up there going, what about that? How come I can't have that? I covet that. It goes deep within us. Now we're bent that way. And they weren't and they were doing that. The other thing is, is that greed and envy and uh, coveting, it, it 
It's an idol in our souls. It's an idol, and we worship it. The great commandment in Deuteronomy 6 makes it to the New Testament. It's in the glass behind me. It says, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and might. Mind. And, and what coveting does is it replaces the Lord for our own ego. And we find ourselves loving ourselves with our, our heart, soul, strength, and mind. We find ourselves scheming and planning and, and consumed with more or what we don't have or not grateful for what we do have. The other reason that greed and coveting and envy is so dangerous is because it is so destructive to our soul. It's a very strange vice in that it, there's, there's nothing really comparable to the power of the depth of it. Uh, there's an author, uh, David Epstein, wrote a book on envy, and he said that envy is the vacuum of joy in our lives, that you can't have joy and envy at the same time. He even goes off to say, and this is, this is a funny insight, that there's, there's no, it's, it's not even a very good vice. It is the worst of all vices. Here's what he says. He says, you know, like when you give in to sloth, it, it's rather pleasant for the moment. Uh, giving into a temper tantrum will give you a release that's not without some delights, small they might be. Lust and greed and pride, they bring quite a bit of pleasure at the time. Only envy is no fun at all. It drains all joy the very moment it's consumed. Poison, it poisons your ability to enjoy life. Envy is comparatinitis. He makes up that word, comparisons all the time. When envy has you in its group, in its grip, nothing is good enough. Not your job, not your marriage, not your money, not your body. You lose the ability to enjoy any single moment that God gave you because you're comparing yourself to someone else or something else. It's psychologically and socially destructive. Wow. There is nothing quite like covenanting and envy. That's a sign of a wicked soul. It's a sign of a sick soul. The sign of a healthy soul, it's grateful and it's content. It's grateful and it's content. Lo Tzu said, if you're content, you're already rich. Think about that. If you're content, then you've already arrived because your soul is so well. Right? So this is what wealthy wise looks like. Here's our little character here. I'll tell you more about why she's carrying that plate of fruits and vegetables, but that's what wealthy wise looks like. And I feel like I might need to explain something very quickly. In our culture, to get elective, they're starting to do class envy, right? So they try to pit the rich against the poor constantly so that they might uh, woo you into voting for them. There is none of that in the Bible. There, there's no value for the rich or for the poor that's different. As a matter of fact, most of the heroes in the Old Testament are quite wealthy. There's no shame to be given there. Uh, Abraham was rich, and uh, Jacob was, and Joseph, and David was exceedingly well off. Even in the New Testament, uh, Jesus' tomb was given to him by a very wealthy businessman that had great political power. And he used the power and he used his wealth to give his Savior a grave. Now, to be sure, he thought it was forever. Jesus was just renting. He didn't buy. So it was still a great gift on his behalf. But wealth is a good thing in the Bible. They don't apologize for it. They don't uh, bemoan it. They talk about wealth in the Bible because it's, this, it, it's a sign of your heart's wellness. You won't see anywhere in the Bible a verse that people quote, but it's not there, that money is the root of all sorts of evil. 
That's not what the Bible says. Attitude's everything. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. Now there's something wrong. The love of money is envy. The love of money is coveting. Those things are evil and wicked for one's soul. So what wealth does, wealth management, your resources, the way you spend and save and give, they tell you four valuable things about your value system. When it, it, it teaches you, it shows you know, who you are. It shows how you invest. It shows who's the king of your life and shows how you trust God. That's what happens when you save and give and spend. It shows who you are. Are you a body with a soul or are you a soul with a body? If you're a soul with a transitory body that's coming and going, then you're going to spend accordingly. You'll be spending on soulish things, psychological things, spiritual things, more so than on just physical delights. And that goes really bleeds right into the second thing it teaches you is how you invest. How do you invest your resources on the kingdom of God? Are you acting like you belong in heaven and this is a foreign place? You're just a traveler, you know, a sojourner passing through? You're just visiting. Is that how you invest? Is that how you spend and save and give? Because like when you go on vacation, you don't bring furniture, right? You don't bring, because you're not staying that long. You bring a couple bags, you're passing through. And so that shows, right, how you invest. Third thing it shows you is who's the king in your life. Because we say we serve Christ the king, and he's the king of all kings. And sometimes in the Bible, the passages say, just do this. And Jesus doesn't have to explain to us to win our understanding. He doesn't have to negotiate with us. He's a king. He's a monarch. We do what we're told. Or are you a person that knows better how things ought to run and what you ought to do, regardless of what the king says? Besides who you are and how you invest and who's your king, it also shows you how you trust God. Because if you haven't heard it before, this might be the first time. A lot of times, the way we trust God is very earthly, earthy. It's with our finances. That's how we show that we believe that he's our provider. He's the one who protects us. And we have to just plow through that fear of insecurity by saying, we're going to have to trust you on this. He will sometimes put us in a situation where he'll call us to do something that the only way out of it is for God to do something because he put us in it. Let me give you an example. Just a couple months ago, uh, Melinda had a sleepless night and she got up. She's kind of getting nagged by what she believed was God's spirit. And so she started opening up her Bible and reading some passages that were the next set of passages to read in a couple of her devotionals. And the devotionals and the passages all seem to be saying the same thing. You need to quit. You need to quit work. Now, she's been working almost 10 years because we needed that extra income to put the kids through college. And, and it served us well, but it's been at the expense of a lot of the ministry that she could do because she's an outstanding volunteer and has a lot of opportunities to care for other people. And she, that's where she's skilled, by the way. And so all those assets were not being used. And, and the math wasn't going, while the children are out of college now, the math still didn't work. And so by the time I woke up, she felt like she needed to tell me that the Lord was leading her to quit work. And I thought, why not? You know, 
Let's see what happens. Maybe we'll have a story at the end of this thing. Well, two weeks later, uh, we found an income stream that we weren't expecting, and the, the additional income stream, oh, wait, so she quit. You need to know that. So she quit. That's important to the story. Sorry. Two weeks later, I just lived and killed the story, didn't I? Two weeks later, I, we found an income stream we didn't know was going to happen. It was almost the same amount of money that she was making when she was working. But that's not why it's a good story. Hear this out. It's a great story because she quit before she knew there was going to be made-up income. In other words, in other words, if you find out all your ends are, you know, everything's going to work out, and then you quit, that's not trusting God. That's just being smart. But if you feel like the Lord's leading you to quit and trust him for that, and you do, now you've got a story. And what's life if it's not a bunch of accumulations of fun stories where you trust God? I mean, that's the purpose of a believer is to accumulate stories where you have to trust God. You know what, one of the main ways you trust God? In the day in, day out of finances. Honest to goodness. It's true. When the Bible talks about money, it's not talking about money. It's talking about are you a giver or are you a taker? Do you covet or are you, you know, generous? Are, do you envy or are you grateful? That's why it talks so much about it. The wealthy wise, the wealthy wise are always generous. That just makes sense. If you have a healthy, wise soul, you'll be generous with your resources. Let me, let me show you. You're generous towards God. Honor the Lord. That's where it starts. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce, and with the best part of everything you produce. Uh, and, and scholars will tell you that honor the Lord with the best part, with your wealth, that's referring to, in the Older Testament, what's called the tithe. Tithe means 10%, and it was required for the people of Israel to give the first 10% of their income to the, the temple as an expression of you believing and trusting in him is that he's the provider of your well-being. He provides for you and he protects you. So here's the first 10%, right? And, it, and here's what it says there, okay? It says the best. And so when people in the Older Testament were tithing, they didn't take the sheep or goat or whatever that wasn't going to make it through the weekend anyway. You know what I mean? It was the first. That means the first set of first 10% of the harvest coming in, and you don't know if you're going to have enough to make it to the end. That doesn't matter. It's the first 10%. It's not any goat. It was the pick of the litter. It was the best goat in, in, you know, right, in your fleet there because he deserves that. It's his. And that's why the hand sign, by the way, is this holding up a plate. Those were the offerings for the various feasts that they received. Those were the, the, the tithing. As a matter of fact, in the Bible, it says if you don't give God that first and best 10%, it says you're robbing God. That's his. All of it's his. But the, the first 10, it's so that it's a recognition that you're trusting him. And guess what? He's your king. That's who you serve. That's, what, that's one of the ways it shows it. Now, that, that is certainly uh, the, the principle that's going on here in the New Testament. It doesn't say that we're supposed to be giving 10%. It says we're supposed to give the way God gives. And when they're referring to that, they're talking about that he gave his only son. We're supposed to be that kind of generous. Now, the next sentence that comes after this one, look at the principle that I want us to grasp. I'll repeat this and restate it several times. Here's the principle. Verse 9 says, honor the Lord with, all, with your wealth 
and with the best part of everything you produce, and then what happens? Trust him. Then, you, then he, that's God, he will fill your barns with grain and your vats overflowing with good wine. He's just saying, if you would just get into this game and let God be your provider and protector, you watch what happens when he shows up to a healthy soul. Watch what happens when you trust him. Because if he, trusts you, if he can trust you for a little bit, he's going to want to trust you for more. He'll give you more responsibility. He, let me say this. Okay, I'm not a TV guy, preacher guy. This is in the Bible. He wants for you to be well. He wants to bless you. Is that okay? Because the Bible says he does want to bless you. It's okay with him for you to have wealth if it doesn't ruin you. If you have a healthy soul and you know who's king and you know how to trust God, it's very likely that he's going to give you more because why wouldn't he? That's the heart of God. The last book in the Old Testament says this. Okay, listen for it, okay? He just dares you to trust God. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, okay? Give me what you, that, that's owed to me in the storehouse, and there will be enough so there's enough food in my temple. And if you do, says the Lord, okay, the God of heaven's armies, he says, I will open up heaven for you, and I will pour out blessings on you so great that you won't have enough room to take it. Try it. Put me to the test. Give me a shot at your life. Get your soul healthy to see that you can, that I'm your king and you do what you're told. I'm a loving king that you can trust with your finances. That's what he's saying here. There's another sentence. Look what happens after that. Your crops will be abundant for I will guard them from the insects and disease. Your grapes will not fall from the vine before they are even ripe, says the Lord, the God of armies. Then all nations will call you blessed, for the land will be of such delight, says the Lord, the God of heaven's army. I, this is God. This is the heart of God. He wants other people, pagan countries, to talk about how blessed it is to be a follower of God because of their prosperity. That's the, it's okay. That's okay because, because they know who's king, and, and they know how to trust God for their well-being. Look, makes it, Jesus in the New Testament, this is the heart of God. Jesus in the New Testament is teaching the greatest sermon ever, right, Sermon on the Mount, and he's talking about prayer, and he says, look, you dads. I mean, listen how cynical this is. Listen, dads, when your son asks you, when your child asks you for a fish, do you give him a snake? No. And you are evil, dads. How much more would the good, good father give you what you need? Ask him. He's not afraid to bless you. Uh, let, me, let me just kind of, let's dramatize this for a second. If you were a parent and you had a 10-year-old son and he had an allowance of, let's say, I don't know, $20 a month, and that son was overflowing with gratitude. I mean, you could tell his soul is well, and he can handle this $20 a month. And then not only that, but he was generous. He was generous to you. He's using some of that allowance to buy you a gift. And then he's pouring it out on his little sister too. He bought her some candy at the store. What are you going to do? I would increase his allowance from 20 to 40 or 60. And you're evil. How much more? How much more? 
Would God, who loves you and is good, do the same thing? It, it's, <laughs> it's healthy, and it's, it's a, a healthy and a wise soul is generous towards God. It just is. And it's generous t- towards victims. A healthy and wise soul is generous towards victims. Now, in, in, the old, in the Bible, the poor are victims of things that they can't control for the most part. It's not because they're irresponsible. So in our culture, we have to distinguish that. So I'm going to say this, generous towards the victims. 29.7 says, the godly care about the rights of the poor because they're victims, right? And the wicked don't care at all. That's this, look at the largeness of the soul here. Another sentence, 28.27 says, whoever gives to the poor will lack nothing. Those who close their eyes to poverty, they'll be cursed. That's the health of a heart. In other words, if you are a good Samaritan, you're going to have a good Samaritan kind of life. Wouldn't you love to see what, you know, like, I know it's a parable, but what's the rest of the good Samaritan's life like? I'll bet it's blessed. I'll bet it is because he had such a healthy heart. I mean, we say this, what goes around comes around. Right. I mean, look, look at this proverb, how it's just showing it just happens. Free, give freely and become more wealthy. Be stingy and lose it right through your fingers. The generous will prosper. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. We, we have secular statistical analysis that proves this passage. It says generous people are almost universally happier than stingy people because there's something right with their heart. We have figures of speech. We say, what goes around comes around. We say, you reap what you sow. There's a figure of speech in the church that says, you can't outgive God. I'm going to say that again. You cannot outgive God. I dare you to try. It's the heart of God. And, and listen, God blesses generosity. He does, because it's a sign of who you are, soul, then body. It's a sign of how you invest, eternity, not temporally. It's a sign of who you think is king, the king of kings. And it's a sign of how you trust him. And there's nothing more real life than trusting God with your finances. Now, in the context of our experience, because those were promises, principles and promises to Old Testament Jews, today he blesses us. He absolutely blesses us spiritually. It, when we're generous. He absolutely blesses us, our, psychi- our psyche, when that. And then sometimes, quite often, he blesses us financially. Know this principle to be true. You never downgrade by obeying. There is never a, a step downwards in trusting him. It is always an advance. It is always an upgrade. You are always blessed in some kind of way, right? And in contrast to that, stingy people, it goes right through their fingers and they can never get enough. So, look, you want, you want to be generous? Do you plan on being generous? I think you should plan to be generous. Generous people plan to be generous. What I mean is generous people, they don't willy-nilly generous. They put it in their budget. They say, this much, maybe a little more next year. That's what generous people do. They, they plan. And if you want to plan on being more generous and you need help with that, can I tell you about a seminar that's coming up starting next week? And you might have all your you know, financial 
works where you're in the black, and, and maybe largely so, but one of your ambitions could be, I want to be more generous next year than this year. Could you guys, with your calculators and pencils, help me do that? That's one way you could do that. Wealth and money and asset management and that sort of thing, your bank, it, it tells you who you are, how you invest, right? Who's your king and how you're going to trust God. We are made in the image of God. Friends, and here's what God is. God is exceedingly, maybe even recklessly generous. For God so loved the world that he gave. What did he give? Did he write a check? No. He, he gave his most precious asset. He gave his only begotten son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Think about that in the context of a soul, a healthy soul. God, in his nature, is generous and exceedingly so. He, he gives us his son. It's a gift. Our salvation is a gift, not earned. And so what happens is we're, we're given this gift of generosity, right, the gift of grace that is seated in our soul. God's Holy Spirit, which is generous, comes inside of our soul because we've trusted in this gift. And now it transforms us by overflowing our soul with generosity. In other words, we have a little bitty human soul here, right? And it is placed within that is the Spirit of God that by its infinite nature is generous and cannot be contained by us. And so, our very salvation is an expression of transformation by generosity. And so, yeah, we were turned in on ourselves and narcissistic by nature, and then because of the gift of grace, we start turning out towards God and towards other people. Sure, yeah, yeah, you know, we were takers. Why, you know, we're on our own out here, and then we become givers. We used to be stingy, and now we're generous. We used to covet and desire all the time, and now we're content. We used to be very envious, and now we are overwhelming in our gratitude. That's how we're transformed, and that's how you get over here, is you let grace transform you. Let God's generous spirit become overflowing in your life. When... When, when we, Melinda and I moved here in 1986, the single worst year in the history of the Austin economy, we came here to start a church. Didn't know a soul. We just went door to door. We didn't have income. And it was a hard time for, for me personally because my soul uh, was not well in this area, right over here in finances. And I was uh, working as a copier guy at a copy shop, copier place, and Melinda was a... Uh, a temporary receptionist, whatever we could to make ends meet. And as we were starting this church, we maybe had six to ten people in it. It wasn't very much. People kept moving out of the city. But we kept tithing towards that. And it, was, it hurt so much for me to tithe. It was like $100 or something like that. It was still 10%. Melinda was very disciplined that way. I did it because the king said so. Didn't like it. I just did what I was told. After three years, we, you know, we started with nothing. We ended with nothing. After three years, nothing worked. But we had this bank account full of other people's and our tithe and we, for renting facilities, those sorts of things, if the church ever got working. 
It didn't, so let's give it away. It was a great night. We gave it to the Life Care Center and the World Vision and to some other churches that had a similar vision here in Austin. And we gave all the money away, hugs all around. It was a good story. Walked out, got in the car, slammed the door and said, that really hurt. That hurt a lot. I've been working 20 hours a week for three years as the pastor of this church, never took a dime. And we had a moment where we could pay the pastor back and I didn't get a thing. A handshake and a hug. And then uh, I heard like the voice of God say, that's not why you came here. You didn't come here for the money. You came here because you were sent to Austin and you were just doing what you were told. And I went, man. I mean, it was a voice. It was like, the, like I could hear it audibly. It was right next to me. I turned and it was Melinda. She was saying all that. <laughs> okay. So there, you know, maybe you're right. <laughs> Speak for God, will you? I'll tell you the story to just tell you that I've come a long way from being intoxicated with greed and being stingy and that sort of thing. But here's, here's, here's what I'll always have with that story. I'll always have a story. I mean, we, we rolled the dice. We rolled them big when we moved here. No matter what happened, we didn't come for the money. We came because we were trusting God. And we have a story. And life is an accumulation of stories about having to trust God. That's what we're doing here. We're learning new ways to trust God. And one of the big ways is in our finances. Don't be a poor fool. Trade up. Be the wealthy wise. You want to do that? Let's pray to that end. We'll start with a prayer from Proverbs. It's a good prayer. Two things I ask you, Lord. Please, Lord, do not refuse these things before I die. One, keep falsehood and lies from me. And two, give me neither poverty nor riches. Just give me my daily bread. Help me be content with that. Otherwise, if you give me too much, I'm likely to disown you and say, who is the Lord? Look at all that I've made. Or if I become poor, I would probably end up stealing, and I would dishonor your name, the name of God. Lord, I'd ask that we would be self-aware enough to be able to pray this prayer that we might desire a healthy soul, that we could be wealthy wise, that we would look upon you the way you keep trying to tell us that you love us and it is within your values to bless us if it doesn't ruin us. I, Lord, I'd ask that we would test you, test you and see what would happen if we called you king and we trusted you in this way. Lord, I want to acknowledge the men and women in the, in the service that are part of this church, and they've been very generous with their time and their very safety, and we are grateful for them. And I'd ask, Lord, that you would protect these men and women, and not just their bodies, that you protect their soul and spirit, that you maintain their innocence, that they would drink deeply of your of knowledge of who you are and the sovereignty of the way you rule this planet and how you grieve over evil and yet are still in charge, they would see that. I'd ask that you'd bring these men and women back up to us whole and well. And we're grateful for them. We're 
grateful for the service that we could even pray this prayer right now without threat. So with gratitude we pray in Jesus' name, amen.